Well, quickly, grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2. Uh, we do try to uh, limit our candlelight service part, at least about 45 minutes or so. So, uh, um, And that all depends on how long-winded I feel today um, and how many jokes I have in the arsenal. So Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read one verse. But if you've been here long enough, you should be more nervous when we read one verse than when we read a thousand. So, uh, but I don't think that'll be the case today. So stand with me out of reverence to God's Word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. The evangelist Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they, that is the Magi, fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let's go learn prayer. My Father, I ask that as always, as we open up your word, that you would transform us by your power and for your kingdom and for your glory. Our entire being, would you move us to faith, to worship, to obedience. And may I decrease so you can increase. In your son, we pray. Amen. May be seated. Ever wonder why, of all the holidays that we have, Christmas is the one that we give gifts away? Now, I know with Easter we'll do it and birthdays and, and you know, uh, others, but, but I, what I'm talking about that it is the gift-giving season. We go crazy over gifts. Our economy, in many ways, is built around the, the season of giving, from Black Friday to Christmas Eve. You know, Christmas Eve is when all the husbands shop. I worked in retail. That is a fact. That is a fact. Husbands shop on Christmas Eve. Wives shop on Black Friday. Uh, that, that is an absolute fact. Don't, don't come at me. But have you ever wondered, what, what is the genesis of that? Why did we all of a sudden decide, you know what we could spend our winter doing? Buying people stuff they don't want nor asked for. That's what we, we could be doing. And then if I get gifts early that I don't want, I can always re-gift them, right? Where, 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 did, where did that tradition come from? Well, most would conclude that it's, it comes from um, St. Nicholas him, himself. Uh, that is, that, that St. Nicholas back of the third century, uh, had received some uh, wealth, had inherited wealth from his parents, and used that wealth to be very generous to those in his community. He was a bishop or a pastor in the area, and, and many were unaware of just how generous he was. The most famous example, perhaps it's legendary, but nevertheless, the most famous example that we, we get of this that really kicks off uh, what will become St. Nick is, is when, when he heard of a father who had three girls who uh, he could not secure a dowry for them. And because he couldn't secure a dowry, they could not get married. And when they can't get married, their future was likely that of harlotry. And he didn't know what to do until one day St. Nick snuck into his house left behind enough gold to pay for the dowry of the oldest daughter. The father woke up the next morning, found the gold, and immediately secured the dowry, found a husband, and she lived happily ever after. Another night came and more gold was found in his home. He took the money, secured a dowry, found a husband, and his second daughter lived happily ever after. Finally, another night, more gold came he secured the dowry for his third and final daughter, married her off, and she lived happily ever after. 
There are other legends regarding Saint Nick, and, and that is perhaps the most, most common one. And, and all of them show that, that Nicholas's generosity only increased. He was a giver, you could say, of gifts. Yet when I was a kid, I thought the genesis of giving gifts during Christmas was traced not back, not back to Saint Nicholas. It was traced back to the Magi. After all, the, one of the first Christmases we have involves a bunch of dudes, I'm sure their wives actually got the gifts, traveled across land and sea, no doubt, in order to bring gifts to Jesus. To me, that was the true genesis of the gift-giving thing. The problem with, with the gifts they bring is they're not very practical. Like the guy in me, like I like practical gifts Socks, you know, it works, works just fine, right? Uh, you, that, that doesn't work with your wife, I've found over the years, right? You, 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 you don't buy your wife a vacuum cleaner, right? That's not something husbands you should get your wives, right? They don't like practical gifts. They like impractical gifts. Insert your joke there. But what the Magi give here aren't practical gifts. I mean, what is a toddler, Jesus is probably just under two years old at this time, what is a toddler going to do with frankincense? What is a toddler going to do with myrrh? I'll be honest with you, I don't even know what those things are, okay? I mean, what is a toddler going to do with him? I thought if, if I got baby Jesus and secret Santa, okay, what would I get baby Jesus? I came up with these three things. Diapers, duh, okay, you already knew that. Secondly, he's about the age he needs to start getting Nerf guns. We, we can agree on that, right? A boy needs a good Nerf gun, not a big Nerf gun, one that he can hide and bust out on Grandpa. That's what I'm talking about, right? Hey, Grandpa, boom, right, right, twixt the eyes, right? He needs a Nerf gun. The third thing I thought that, that you could get baby Jesus was an all-inclusive vacation to Egypt. Keep reading Matthew 2 and you'll get that joke. But what they bring Jesus is gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The choice of those gifts aren't accidental. The first thing they give Jesus is a gift fitting for a king. Of all the precious metals, gold has long been considered the universal symbol of wealth and power. When we look at it in the Bible, this certainly comes to the forefront. The tabernacle and the temple were both saturated with gold. Here is just one sample of it. In fact, if you were to read 2 Chronicles 4, you would find gold referenced like a dozen times. And what you'll find is that the rings were made of gold, the mercy seat made of gold, the cherubim, the dishes, the pans, the jars, the bowls, the lampstand, all made of gold. So as you would walk into the temple, you'd be surrounded by gold. And don't forget that this temple that's being described in 2 Chronicles 4 is Solomon's temple. It is as much the temple of the king built by the king as it is anything else. We know it today as Solomon's temple. Later, it gets destroyed, and, and 70 years later, Israelites will build a second temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Haggai and Ezra and Nehemiah and others. And you remember those who remember Solomon's temple, they, they, they lament that this temple is nice, but it's nothing compared to the grandeur of Solomon's. Notice again that the temple was often identified by the king under whose leadership it was built. 
Well, likewise, that gold not only saturated the religious system of Israel, it carried monetary value. This isn't news to you or I. Here, here is uh, one example of this, of, of gold having monetary value. He was given flocks, herds, silver, gold, male servants, female servants. Same thing in, in, in Proverbs 8, which isn't up there. That's okay. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. That is that wisdom and knowledge and discernment is more precious than gold, Solomon writes. In fact, it wasn't until 1971, or it was until 1971, that, that our currency, our wealth was tied to gold. 1971, Nixon uh, got us out of the gold standard. Now, what backs up our coinage is, I don't know what backs up our coinage, right? You know, your dollar bill is worth a dollar bill. It's worth 100 pennies. Says who? says America, right? That's all you need to know now, right? That's how the system works, right? But gold has always had a monetary value to it. So I don't know what happened to all the gold in Fort Knox. I assume the aliens from Area 51 are there now. But nevertheless, every dollar coincided with uh, uh, gold along with it. So, so you have the monetary part of it. And, but, but remember, in the ancient world, what is stamped on those coins? The faces of kings and royal people. Remember, it is Jesus who takes the coins and whose image is, is on that coin. It's that of Caesar's. Thirdly, gold was symbolic of royalty and power. Let me give you just two examples here. 1 Kings 10, then she gave, this is the Queen of Sheba, she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices. Why? Because gold is associated with royal power. Kings were wealthy in gold and land. This is still true today, that you won't meet a poor royal. And one of the ways to flaunt your wealth is by the possession of gold. The same thing happens a few verses later. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid the ivory throne with gold because apparently ivory wasn't fancy enough. It was the gold that demonstrated his wealth and power as king. So then here come the magi. And the first gift they give the Christ child is that of gold. And immediately we should ask ourselves, well, who are the Magi here? Who are these people bringing this gold? And, and from what we can tell, they're likely Persians from the east. Uh, that is to say that everything in the first few lines of we three kings of Orient are is like wrong. Okay, we three, we, I don't know how many of Persians are, right? I, I don't, that doesn't roll off the tongue as well. But they're likely of Persians from the east. Their earliest reference is probably the book of Daniel, Daniel uh, 2 and 4, chapter 2. Uh, then the king gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. The reference here and there throughout Daniel. Their genesis seems to go all the way back to at least Babylon. Now, among the duties of the Magi was that they crowned kings. This is one of the things they did. After all, you get this in the ancient world. Someone has to crown the king. And often it is the religious system that does that. So you get priests and bishops and, and others, right? So the Pope used to crown kings throughout Europe. And so to hear the Magi play the role of being the ones to actually crown the new king of Persia, wherever it is that they, they might be coming from. So that explains why when they follow the star, they are looking for the king of the Jews. The first place they go to is the guy who has the title of king. Read the first few verses of Matthew 2. They first go to Herod, who is supposed to be the king of the Jews. They meet with him and they discover this guy has the title, but he is not the one that we are looking for. 
So too, when they come and find Jesus in his living quarters, the house, you see it there in verse 11. It's not a stable because the Magi aren't there at, at the nativity. He's already living at home. And, and, and they find him and they say, this is the king of the Jews. And so what they give Jesus is the gift fitting for a king. We don't have the time, but we've looked at it in the past. If, if you were to do a study of Matthew's gospel, it is clear Matthew wants more than anything for his reader to understand Jesus is king. After all, we see in the very first verse of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, what does it say? This is the genealogy of Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David. Thus he is a Jew, and thus the covenant of Abraham applies to him. Not only that, he is a descendant, the rightful heir to the throne of David. Thus, the Davidic covenant belongs to him as well. He deserves a throne. Why? Because he is king. The Magi clearly want us to see that he is a king. And the contrast between Jesus as king and Herod as king is evident. John the Baptist, we've seen in recent weeks, comes preaching what? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You can't have a kingdom without a king. Jesus will eventually, following his temptation and the gathering of his first disciples, he will climb a mountain and he will give this, the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And part of that sermon, he depicts himself as king, where he's standing on the throne and says, depart from me, all you who, who do not know me. He will then cast out demons and heal the sick and do all kinds of miracles because he is the one with the authority of a king. The, the demons will say, we know who you are when everyone else seems to be ignorant of who Jesus really is. The disciples are, are dumbfounded when he calms the storm and walks on the water and they say, who is this guy that the sea and the wind and the waves obey him? Matthew wants us to see as the reader that just is the king, the one in whom the magi come and bring gifts. Chapter 13 is, is the famous par parables of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. Jesus describes the kingdom not as a citizen, but as its king. Chapter 16, we get the institution of the kingdom known as the church. There he tells Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 21, he arrives into Jerusalem as king. What is it that, that is said? Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full beast of burden. A donkey was a royal animal. We see David and his sons riding on donkeys, and not to mention the Maccabeans uh, in the intertestamental period uh, frequently. He goes as king. He, he tells us of his return as a king in, 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 in uh, the Olivet Discourse. In chapter 25, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. This, of course, climaxes not in, in, in the triumph of the king, but in the death of the king. Think about how he is mocked. He's given a false crown. He's given a false robe. He's given a false throne. He's given a false army. He's given a false scepter. And above his head upon the cross, it says, this is Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews. It was mockery. But the claim is there. He is king. Only for three days later, the triumph of the king to be made evidently clear. Christ has overcome it all. He is king. What army can stop a man who can defeat death? And thus, Matthew ends with the commissioning of the king. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. It's clear this gift is meant for us to see that this baby, this toddler, this child is king, 
So the Magi come and they recognize him as king. So not only do we see a gift fitting for a king, we see a gift fitting for the divine. Frankincense is mentioned only one other time in the New Testament. It's in Revelation 18. It's mentioned with other spices. But in a nutshell, frankincense is incense. Now, that may seem obvious to you, but that was eye-opening to me, all right? I don't know what frankincense is. Let's be honest. I'm a dude, all right? I don't like smells, period. The migraines, it just triggers them. So I don't like smells. Frankincense is incense, but more than that, it is a costly incense. It was known for the beautiful smell that, that, that it gives. And when you read about it in the Old Testament, it is almost always associated with both the tabernacle and the temple. Let me give you uh, two examples of this in Leviticus 2. So what you would have then is the priest would come and burn incense within the temple so that as you would enter to the house of God to make your sacrifices, to say your prayers, the smell of the incense would hit you immediately and you would see that in the incense was a picture of your prayers going up to heaven and being received. This is why in Revelation, when, when the, the bowls are given to Jesus, right, and he, or the seals, and he's about to break open the seals, we first see Jesus receiving the incense. He's receiving the prayers of the saints, and he answers them by breaking the seals, the bowls, and the trumpets, the 21 judgments of, of Revelation. So thus, frankincense was used by priests in the context of worshiping God. It was a picture of prayer. It was a picture of worship. And one knew when you walked into the temple and the frankincense hit, hit you, you knew you were in a house of worship. It was stored in a special chamber in the front of the temple so that the smell would hit you immediately. And, and, and so it is then. These travelers from afar come and bring not practical gifts, but symbolic gifts here, frankincense, incense, and they bring it to the Christ child. And they say, it isn't just that he is a king who will rule. He is a God who is our creator. Isn't this what Matthew has already told us? In Matthew chapter one, he, he tells us, I may need your help, Don, on this one. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. What the Magi are doing in giving of the incense is they are not coming to Jesus as a priest. They are as priests coming to Jesus as a God, as the God. You are king of the Jews. This is God among us. That way we, the reader, would again associate frankincense with the divine. Except here the divine isn't hidden behind a curtain in a building somewhere in the Middle East. As John will put it, he walked among us and we beheld his glory. The third gift is a gift fitting for a savior. Thank you, Don. Now myrrh shows up a few times in the New Testament, a few times in the Old Testament. But for the sake of simplicity, it really shows up in two different contexts. We're not really different. You will see the similarities. The first, myrrh, um, was another spice less expensive than frankincense. But the first way it was often used in the uh, time of Jesus was as, a, as an anesthetic. That is to say that mixed with wine, it could be used to numb pain. We see this from Jesus on the cross, Mark 15. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. The second purpose of myrrh we see in the New Testament is for burial. 
John chapter 19, verse 39, and there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Interesting, isn't it? That the two primary references to myrrh outside of, of the Magi we see in the New Testament, its context has to do with the suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what I think that we are to see here in this gift is Matthew foreshadowing for the reader where this story goes. You see, it's this third gift. It's this third meaning that underlies everything else. Jesus is king, but not just any king. He is a king who triumphs over the grave. He's God, but not just any God. He's a God who comes down, not merely to bring us good ideas and good morals and good suggestion. He's a God who puts on flesh to give us good news. Tis mystery all, the hymn writer says. The immortal dies. He comes to save sinners from their sins. Isn't this what the angel warned Mary? In Luke chapter 2, actually not angel, I believe this is Simeon. The sword will pierce through your own soul also, he says to her, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Every commentator throughout Christian history has understood that to mean, Mary, the day will come. You celebrate the birth of your child today. That is good. The day will come. Your very soul will be pierced when you watch him hung from a tree. And so it is these magi come from afar. These Gentiles from a foreign land. They come not to bring practical gifts. They come to bring gifts that tell us who this child is. He is king. He is divine. He is savior. We began by asking what is the true genesis of Christmas gift giving? Maybe you want to say it's St. Nick. Maybe you want to say it's the Magi. But the truth is, we give out of generosity. We are to be a generous people. Not because a holiday tells us, but because we've been given Christ. The true genesis of gift giving comes from the Messiah himself. As king, he offers to us and he gives all who would come to him a kingdom, the rights of a citizen of that kingdom. If only we would come and bow before a king. As God, he gives all who would come to him, himself. And as savior, he gives all who would come to him, life, joy, peace, love, redemption. You see, these men understood they weren't paying homage to royalty. They were coming to worship their divine Savior. That's the point of Christmas. That is why we gather week in and week out. So we bring gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
because he is worthy of it. For he is our king, he is our God, and he is our savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.